Well, it is, it is great to see you this morning. Um, we're going to continue, we're going to go back into our study of the book of Acts, and we're going to resume with us looking at Paul's farewell speech to the Ephesian elders in chapter 20. In 1990, I gave a farewell speech to the church, a church that I was saved in at the age of 12, and eventually became the pastor. My mistake was not to script and write down what I wanted to say. And so at the end of speaking to the church for the final time, I sat down and I said to the person who was sitting next to me, in fact, it was the person who was taking me to Cardiff, I said, oh, I missed some of the things I wanted to say. I was disappointed that I missed out. And then with typical encouragement, he turned to me and said, don't worry, Peter, they've probably forgotten already what you said. Don't worry about it. Typical encouragement. But I will contrast that to the speech that we're going to look at this morning, the farewell speech of Paul to the Ephesian elders. This speech was scripted by the Holy Spirit, delivered by the Apostle Paul, and enshrined in Scripture for all time, so that 2,000 years later, we might learn from it. Very different from mine, which was not memorable, not written down, and nobody can think of it today. Kent Hughes writes this of this speech. He said, if we read Acts 20, 17 through to 38 with a sterile detachment, we deprive ourselves of the life and resulting benefit of the passage. The image here called to mind in Paul's meeting with the Ephesian elders is that of a group of soldiers still soiled by the dust and blood of war, drawing together with their revered, revered general for some final wisdom. You see, Paul, in this speech, why Kent Hughes is encouraging us not to read it with a sterile detachment, here in this speech, he was anticipating that this was the last time he would see these men. He loved these men. And we're going to look at verse 36 to 38 a bit later, but 36 to 38 gives us the context of this final time together. There was weeping. There was embracing, there was kissing. And it was not flowing out of sentimentality, but out of a deep relationship that these elders had with the Apostle Paul. Paul had spent three years with them, planting the church, discipling them, and then setting them in as elders. He was to them their father in the faith. And Paul clearly loved these men, and they loved him. He loved the church in Ephesus, and here he was expressing his love for them in this speech in a very tangible, meaningful way. Although this speech that we're going to read is primarily for elders, I didn't think it was that wise just to speak to Matt and myself. Um, but I think we can look at this, look at this speech, and we can see from it things that would benefit ourselves. Having said that, Paul's speech is very challenging to elders, to those who are elders of the Church of Christ. So can I just say, please pray for us. I know you do, so that we might serve with the same commitment as Paul. As I said, I think we can draw lessons from this speech and we can benefit each one of us this morning. Can I say this as well? Although this speech is to elders, here and in Timothy when Paul writes to Timothy about the qualifications and the characteristics, the character of elders, 
I believe that we can all aspire to these characteristics. It's not just to say it's only elders who need to aspire to those characteristics. It's for all of us to aspire to them. But elders have to reach a certain point. Paul says in Corinthians, doesn't he, imitate me as of Christ. So although he was an apostle, he's an elder, he's a pastor, he's still saying, imitate me as of Christ. So let's turn to Acts 20, and I'm going to start to read from verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul abroad there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The, day, the next day we touched at Samos, and the day after we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have, have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. You remember he was carrying an offering for the Jerusalem church. He was, he was in a hurry to get there to deliver this offering, an offering that gathered from the churches in that area. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to, to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance amongst, among all those who are sanctified. I coveted to no, one, no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, 
it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This was the final time that Paul was going to speak to these Ephesians elders. And I think we can make three observations for this, from this speech that could speak to us this morning. First of all, Paul's commitment to God and his people. Secondly, Paul's commitment to sharing God's word. And thirdly, Paul's commitment to protect Christ's church. First of all, Paul's commitment to God and his people. In verses 18 to 20, we read of Paul's unshakable commitment to God and God's people. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with trials, with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house. Paul was totally committed to these people, totally committed, whether, whether it was in a, in a gathered church or house to house, he was committed to share the word of God with them. He was committed to these people. You know, commitment can mean different things to different people. I read of a young man who poured out his heart's devotion in a letter to the girl of his dreams, telling her that he would climb the highest mountain, swim the widest river, cross the burning desert, and die at the stake for her. At the end of the letter, he said, P.S., I'll see you on Sunday if it doesn't rain. This wouldn't be Paul's idea of commitment. That was a very weak commitment. Paul was committed to these people. He lived amongst them. He shared his life with them. He didn't stand aloof from them in some, like some celebrity preacher. He got his hands dirty, as it were, with them. He got involved in their lives. He served alongside them. He served with tears through his and their trials. And he didn't hold back from declaring them anything that was profitable. As I was reading this, I became fixed on this verse 31. Verse 31, he says, For three years I did not cease to admonish everyone with tears. For three years I did not cease to admonish everyone with tears. Admonish, what does that word? Was he telling them off? Was this finger pointing, telling them off even though he was crying? Was he rebuking them? No, he was caringly coming alongside them in bringing correction. I think it's important that we do understand what admonishment means. Because Paul says this, he did this every day to everyone. Well, he's, he's covering everything, whether literally every day to every person. But he was, to everyone, he was admonishing them. And it was something that was taking place daily over three years. The Greek word for admonishment is neutheto, which means to warn or instruct. It has nothing to do with punishment. We often see admonishment in the context of punishment. It's nothing to do with the punishment at all. And there is no English word that can, can fully convey the meaning of neuthosis. And so it's important that we understand the basic principles of what admonishment means because Paul says he admonished everyone 
and it would appear regularly. And if that was for Paul, I believe that's for us as well. But it's important how we admonish. And there are three simple elements of this word, neuthosis or neuthetic. First of all, that it presupposes a change in the person's life where there is sin or an obstruction in the person's life or difficulty that needs to be resolved. It's a condition that God would want changed, i.e. there would be biblical warrant for it. It's not your preference. It's not your idea. It's not what you think. It's, first of all, it presupposes a change that God requires in a person's life. And then admonishment is the training and correction that is done verbal and is done in person to person. Neutetic confrontation is a biblical aim in, in helping the behaviour of someone to conform to the biblical standards. And it is done verbally, person to person. I once heard somebody say it's the sort of thing where you're walking, there's a couple of guys arm in arm down the road, and you're just dropping things, you're just mentioning something. It's not a finger pointing, it's not a rebuke. It's just a help, and it needs to be done person to person. And the third element is that it is done for the benefit of those who are being confronted. It's not done for your benefit. You confront a person or you admonish somebody because they need help, not because it's a problem to you. It can be in life sometimes. There are things in people's lives that are a problem to us, but that's not the basis for admonishment. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14, Paul writes, I did not write these things to shame you, but to confront you, and I've changed the word here, neuthetically, as my beloved children. To admonish you as my beloved children, not to shame you. See, Paul admonished these people with tears, tears and had a love for them for their benefit. Even when, it, he says, even when it's difficult, in verse 27, I did not shrink from bringing you the whole counsel of God. Question I have for us, I wonder this morning, do you have someone in your life who would in love and grace admonish you? Do you make it hard for people to get alongside you, to bring you admonishment? Do you invite observations about your life from others? It can be challenging, can't it, when somebody comes along? My natural reaction is being defensive. If you talk to June, I turn it all around, it's her fault. You know. <laughs> but that's the tendency many of us would have. But it's a biblical basis to, to open our lives up for admonishment, because that's how we're going to grow. That's how we're going to move forward. And I think it's so helpful when we actually ask people, not people have to wait and think, oh, can I say something here? Ask for observations. Ask, is there something you see? You know, when people come and stay, it's a practice we've made over the years, that people come and stay in our home. Well, it's normally me. I'll say, have you seen anything the way I've dealt with you and the way I've talked to her when the children were little, when, the, when anything with the children. Ask the question, it makes it so much easier for the other person. And admonishment done correctly, done in love and grace, is an act of faithfulness and brotherly affection. Paul's commitment to the people was driven by the conviction that in serving the people, he was serving God. So secondly, let's look at Paul's commitment to sharing God's word. Verse 20, 21, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable 
and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Sharing God's word with others, as Paul did, presupposes knowing God's word. Now, we have many, many messages in this church about the importance of God's word. See, Paul, he was a student of God's word because the word of God revealed to him a correct understanding of who God is, of his ways and his purposes, and therefore gave him a biblically informed direction for his own life. And that's what the word of God can do for us. It will help us. It will reveal to us who God is. It will reveal to us who God's ways are and God's purposes are. And I have talked over the years to people, I've often heard this statement like, my God is not like that. My God wouldn't do that, whatever we were perhaps talking about. Perhaps it's in certain areas of doctrines. My God wouldn't do that. It's important. We like, we, we like Paul have a biblically informed understanding of who God is, his ways and his purposes. You know, who God is doesn't come. Understanding God doesn't come from spending hours waiting on God in prayer. Being in our prayer closet, or as the older Christians would refer to it, or your bedroom, or listening to watching radio and TV channels. It comes through God's revelation found in the Bible. Somebody once said to me, three hours in your prayer closet, you can make God say anything. And it's true. Recently, some of you will, I know, use uh, Paul, Mer, Paul Tripp's New Morning Mercies. And I found this quite interesting over a number of days. He addressed what kind of Jesus we want. Do we want the Prozac Jesus who will make you better? The vacation planner Jesus who will take you to a place where life is more pleasurable? The suggestion box Jesus whose law is more advice than counsel? The district attorney or lawyer Jesus for us who will get all those people who make your life hard, who will sort them out? Or match.com Jesus now, I, I, never, I don't know what Match.com is. I can only guess. Never been on it. <laughs> Who give you someone to love. I don't know whether that's a, a UK one anyway. Who give you someone to love. Or the Nima Marcus or the Harrods or the John Lewis Jesus who will deliver all your golden dreams. You know, we can have views of God and of Jesus and there could be truth in some of these things, but we could place a wrong understanding of who God is. And Paul's answer to all the potential Jesuses, if that's the right word, is that he will be nothing less than your sovereign saviour king. That's who he'll be. This morning, he's our saviour. He's sovereign over all that we're going through. Whatever you're going through this morning... I know some, but I don't know all. God is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. He is your saviour and he's your king. In Acts 3, verse 13, refers to the God of 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you see this throughout the Old Testament, don't you, that often God is referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's to ensure that we're talking about the same God. It's this God that we worship. It's this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that we see through, through the scriptures that we be, both need to know and know about. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob we know and not a God of our own making. So maybe we also have the same commitment as Paul had to know and to share God's word. And then thirdly, Paul's commitment to protect Christ's church. Verse 28 to 30 says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. At this stage, when Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders, it was a healthy church. But Paul knew that when he left, it would be attacked with false doctrine. And so he exhorts the Ephesian elders to, first of all, watch over their own lives. Then he exhorts the elders to protect the church from false doctrine. He tells them to watch out for fierce wolves will come amongst you. He doesn't say maybe. That after I leave, they may or may not come. But you will be attacked. They will come. And not only from outside, but also from inside. There will be people who want to distort the truth, drawing people after themselves. One of the most significant tasks of the pastor is to love the flock by caring for them and to ensure that they're not savaged and confused by the fierce wars. But I think also it's the responsibility of each and every one of us when we hear false doctrine coming into the church, when we hear some people talking about things that we know are not true. Jesus himself, in commissioning his disciples, says in Matthew 10, 16, be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Often thought of, it's a text I love, be wise as serpents, not to be stupid. The sheep are naturally stupid, but we are his sheep. We're to be wise, but as well harmless as doves, loving to people. As I was thinking about this area of false doctrines, I thought about some of the popular heresies that are around at this time. Number one, Jesus was just a good man. Jesus was just a good man. He was a wise teacher. He was a great spiritual leader. But he wasn't God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus is God in the flesh who came to earth to affect God's plan of salvation to all who trust in Christ. Jesus was not just a good man. He was more than that. He was much more than that. He was the very essence of God in the flesh. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he came with a purpose to affect God's plan of salvation to all those who will put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Another one, don't take the Bible too literally. The idea here is that the Bible is a great book with helpful advice on how to live life. In particular, 2,000 years ago, it was more relevant than it would be today. It's good to study for literature. It's an interesting book to read, but not for applying its teaching for today. You've probably heard people say that. The Bible itself teaches us that the words of the scripture are the very words of God and therefore is meant to be authoritative to our lives. As Matt started off this morning, we're going to read, say the Bible, scriptures, it's God's word. It's God's word speaking to us. He speaks off these pages to us. And we pray for the Holy Spirit to bring revelation of that word so that that word lives within us. It transforms us. Just reading it won't. But when we pray and ask the Lord by his, by his Holy Spirit to make it alive with us, it's God's word. And it's meant to be authoritative in our lives. How often have you heard people say, good people go to heaven? Good people go to heaven. The idea, as long as you try your best to be a good person, you do good to others, you'll go to heaven. How often have you been in a place of work or in school and you've done something and somebody says, I thought you were a Christian. What's that telling you? What's it telling you when they say that? They're telling you that they believe Christianity is about how you behave fundamentally. It's not. It's what you believe. It transforms your behavior, but we're still sinners. But it shows how the world considers what it is to be a Christian. The Bible teaches us that no matter how hard we try, we will never be good enough. The Bible teaches us that we need to be forgiven of our sins, made holy by being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, when we trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we can and we now receive eternal life. We can know that our lives are hidden in Christ. On one day, we will be with Jesus forever in eternity. Four, being a Christian will make you healthy and wealthy. Or well, only if that was true. It's, the, it's, it's as Paul says, it's the, it's the doctrine that tickles the ears of people in the last days. And this means this teaching is commonly known as the prosperity gospel. And it says if you're living for God in the way he commanded and we exercise faith for our health and wealth, we will become physically healthy and financially prosperous. But the Bible doesn't promise a life of health and wealth to those who are faithful. In fact, we haven't got time to go into this this morning. In fact, wealth is often described in negative terms and suffering in positive terms. There is no biblical reason for a Christian to expect a life of physical well-being and a life of prosperity. Sure, big churches, some people say to me, but these are, these are some of the biggest churches. Well, a lot of people want to go and hear that, rather than the teaching of taking up the cross and denying yourself. As Paul has done. Yeah, of course. A lot of people like that. 
but it's not the truth. And that's the sad thing. And then just one more. There are so many more, but I just picked out a few that I thought might be helpful for us. The therapeutic gospel. Some of you may have heard this term, the therapeutic gospel. Um, David Powlison, I thought, he says it much better than I can say, so we use his words. David Powlison argues that the therapeutic gospel concerns itself with people's felt needs for love, for significance, for self-esteem, self-confidence, self-assertion, pleasure and excitement. The therapeutic gospel gives people what they want. It makes them feel better, at least temporarily. It centers around the welfare of man and temporal happiness. Allison goes on to say it maintains, it discards, maintains, it discards the glory of God in Christ. It forfeits the narrow, difficult road that brings deep human flourishing and eternal joy. Allison concludes that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings change through repentance, faith, and transformation into the image of his son. You notice when I read through those, some, some, of, some of those things of for love, significance, self-esteem, self, 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 self. Therapeutic gospel centers on self, centers on felt needs rather than real needs. This morning, Christ, if you're a Christian this morning, Christ has satisfied your real need. But you might be coming in here this morning with some felt needs. Don't confuse them. Don't confuse them with what God, how God wants to meet with you. You know, as I said, there are many, many more. These are just some of the false doctrines that are around. And Paul's love for the church was expressed in a, his concern about false doctrine invading the church. And so this is what he brought to mind and brought to them in his final speech. Found these two um, bits of advice from R.C. Sproul help us in paying careful attention to ourselves. First of all, he says, actually... One of the most dangerous things we could do as Christians is to determine our theology by our experience because no one's experience is normative for the Christian life. We have to determine our theology from the word of God, not from what we feel. Therapeutic goes into what we feel. He says, rightly so, we have to determine, we have to be sure about our theology, our ology of God, if you like, from the word of God, not from what we feel. And I, I found this also a helpful statement that, that also he says, the issue for us regarding false teaching is not that which is clearly wrong, but that which is nearly right. That which is nearly right. In some of the things I've even mentioned, you can find something in there. Those are perhaps more obvious, but there are other things that are less obvious. You know, sometimes, and some of you will have heard this, so forgive me, but when I'm sort of preparing a couple for, for marriage, uh, a bit, bit naughty really, I say, marriage, of course, is about give and take, isn't it? And they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, biblically it's not. It's give, give, give. Now you hope that's both sides. But it's so subtle, isn't it? Because it sounds okay. It sounds, the world talks about that. It sounds okay. It's nearly right, but it's wrong. And there are lots of other things that we have to be so careful about. And although Paul gave this warning to the Ephesians elders, 
It says here his confidence in the application of these things was not in the elders. He says in verse 32, he commended them to the word of God's grace. Ultimately, his confidence, his faith was in God and the word of his grace. He was commending them to the gospel, the doctrines of God's love and kindness, all expressed in God's grace. And it's interesting as he comes to the close of his, his speech, he concludes with this quotation of Jesus. Because it's more blessed to give than receive. And it seems as though Paul wanted to sum up everything about his approach to ministry, about his approach to life, in the context of giving. He first of all gave himself to God, which from that place gave himself to the people. We try and just give ourselves to the people without giving ourselves to God. We will struggle. First of all, to God. Giving to God's people. Giving the word of God to them. Giving them advice on how to protect the church. Paul's approach to ministry was very much one of giving. But Paul had an awareness. Awareness of this church that he loved. How it came about. Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Overseers, elders, pastors, one of the same thing. To care for the church of God, which he obtained, which he obtained with his own blood. He was aware of the price that had been paid for this church that he loved. He was aware of what Christ had gone through to bring about the church of Christ. John Stott says, if the church was worth the blood of Christ, is it not worth our labour? The church was worth the blood of Christ. Is it not worth our labour? Paul understood this, and I believe this awareness became a significant motivation to fuel his commitment to the people, to church, to sharing God's word and protecting God's church. In verse 24, we read that he would give everything away, his life, if only he could finish the course and the ministry he received from the Lord Jesus. What was that ministry? It was to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We may not be evangelists this morning. We may not be preachers this morning. We may not have any official position of ministry, but we can all testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul elsewhere talks of us as being Christ's ambassadors. We're not all, we're not all evangelists. We're not all going to be pastors. We're not all going to be in some position of leadership necessarily within the church, but we're all part of the church of Christ. And I believe we all have the opportunity to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And finally, we come to verses 36 to 38. We come to this sad farewell and says his final goodbyes. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. 
They embraced Paul and kissed him. Being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Paul, this final sort of center, this, this very emotional few verses of, that shows the love they had for Paul. This man who had been amongst them for three years, who admonished them, who taught them, who did not spare anything in bringing the word of God to them, in both word and life. They weren't going to see him again. We know what it's like sometimes when we, we don't see people again, loved ones. And this was almost, almost for them. It wasn't, there, was no, uh, there was no Zoom to get onto next week. Let's see Paul on Zoom or FaceTime or anything else. This was it. They weren't going to see him again. You know, Paul leaves for Jerusalem, but he left them and us today a compelling example of how we should love the church and how we should approach life and how we should approach ministry. Let us pray. question for all of us today is, how much do we love the church? When we look around this room, I'd like to stand in attitude of prayer. When we look around this room, do we see folks who Jesus gave his life for? Jesus bled and died for? For those of us who been obtained with his own blood. How much do we love the church? I'd like us just to consider, no matter how much we love the church, I believe every single one of us can grow. Spend a couple of moments just praying to the Lord. And if you need to confess where you haven't loved the church, then confess it. If you want to grow, then confess it. But ask him for grace to enable you to do it. Father, we thank you for your plan of salvation that through Christ has brought about your church, the church of God, the church of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we who are trusting in Jesus, trusting in who he is, second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, and trusting in his works on Calvary. That he went to the cross for each one of us. And by his blood, because we trust in that, we have been forgiven, we are redeemed. We could say this morning, 
But God, you are our Father. And that our destiny is bound up in Christ. But today we could say our lives are hidden in Christ. So our future is not dependent on us, it's dependent on Christ. And we can, we can be sure of that. We can be confident in that. Father, would you help each of us to love you and your church more? Lord, would you help each one of us by your grace to follow in the footsteps of Paul, sharing your word, not false doctrines, and spending time to know what your word is, spending time to see who you are, your ways and your purposes, so that the direction for our life may be ordered by your word. Father, may we, in our love for one another, protect each brother and sister from false teaching, false doctrines which will try and draw us away. Those things that are nearly right, but are still wrong. Father, give us grace as a church that we grow in all these areas. And Lord, we'll give you all the glory because it won't be anything of us. It'll be all of grace, all of you. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for this example. Thank you for this passage in Scripture, for this speech. It is that compelling example for all of us today.